Welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I'm your host, Marissa Meyer. Thanks so much for joining me. Some things that have been making me happy this week, uh, and it's kind of a a multi-tiered grouping of things, but they've all become kind of interlaced in our family life. Uh, The first one is Michael Jackson's Thriller video, which... I mean, come on, is like one of the coolest music videos of all time, even though it came out decades ago. Uh, And my girls are really, really into this video. And so as part of our like, quote unquote, PE, physical education in our homeschool is that we have decided to start trying to learn to do the thriller dance together. So that has been super fun and honestly something that's like been on my bucket list for ages. And then in doing that, we've now fallen down this YouTube rabbit hole of thriller inspired videos. And there is this stop motion Lego thriller that somebody put together. It is awesome. I definitely recommend going and watching it. It is totally worth the five minutes of your time to see it. And then that now has led us into stop motion animation. And my girls are wanting to make their own little stop motion animation videos. I posted one on Instagram earlier this week uh, of an Elsa doll getting maybe eaten by a shark. Maybe she's hugging the shark. It's tough to tell what's going on. I don't know, but it's just been making me really, really happy watching the girls uh, kind of experience this new art form. And it's just been a really, really fun week. So that is all making me super happy. And of course, I am so happy to be talking to today's guest. They're the author of multiple books for young adults, including When the Moon Was Ours, The Weight of Feathers, and Wild Beauty. Their newest novel, The Mirror Season, comes out this week on March 16th. Please welcome Anna Marie Mecklemore. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for joining me. I'm super happy to have you too. Why don't we start um, just by jumping right into it? Why don't you tell listeners about your new book, The Mirror Season? So The Mirror Season is about two sexual assault survivors, a queer Latina girl and a boy who find their fates intertwined during this month of enchanted mirrors and enchanted palm dulce and vanishing forests. This is really a story about survivors supporting each other, survivors helping each other find their strength, their voice, and really rediscovering their magic um, and rediscovering who they are both in the in the aftermath of trauma and, re- and rediscovering who they who they've been the whole time. This is a book a lot about holding on to identity. It's about it's about pansexual identity. It's also um very very loosely inspired by The Snow Queen. There are elements of The Snow Queen throughout this because it's a story that the main character Ciela really connects to. She wonders what what do we say about this about this character who we're so quick to take as a villain? What what happened to her that made her more at home in in this world of ice? What are we not asking about her? what What is her story? So this is a this is a book that um, definitely has magic. It's also a little bit more contemporary than I've done before, but it has a little bit of that 
of of that fairy tale essence in there, especially as something that um, Sienna holds on to throughout the story. Mm. Well, there are about 8 billion things that I want to talk about with this book. Um, So since you've already brought up fairy tales, that was definitely on my list. Uh, So let's start there. Because obviously fairy tales are something that you and I have in common. Yes. deep, Deep love for fairy tales. And I know this is not the first book that you've, you know, addressed fairy tales and used them to inspire the story. Um, I know you uh, did a book uh, inspired by The Red Shoes by Hans Christian Andersen. Um, and I believe what was uh, Snow White Rose Red? I think you did one as well. Yes, that was a, that was Blanca Roja. That was kind of putting together Snow White and Rose Red with Swan Lake. Oh, I didn't know Swan Lake was an inspiration in that too. Oh, that's so cool. So one thing that I like love immediately off the bat is you're kind of choosing fairy tales that are a little bit more obscure. Um, Of course, my first one was Cinderella, which is like the opposite of obscure. (laughs) But I love, I love that you're using these ones that readers may or may not be super familiar with. So just talk to me a little bit about why fairy tales? Why? What is it that you love about them, and why do you keep pull, using them to to pull into your stories? I think something I love about fairy tales is that they're they're speaking to something universal in us. And part of what I always say when I say that is that fairy tales are in every tradition. They're in they're in every culture. Even if we often think of them, especially in this in this country, as this is a certain very very Western version of them, very specific image we have of them. But fairy tales are they're in every tradition. So I have I have fairy tales that I I loved growing up that are from that more European tradition. Like I, I loved the Snow Queen growing up. It was one that I felt I felt very deeply connected to. Um, I was sort of I, I sort of loved and was also haunted by the red shoes because I was a dancer. Um, but there are also there are also stories that sort of spoke to to folklore that I heard growing up. Like there there is a there is a Mexican version of Snow White and Rose Red. There there are a lot of similarities. Um, I I love that version of Snow White and Rose Red, and I don't really want to call it a version of Snow White and Rose Red because they're they're different they're different stories. They're from different traditions, but they sort of talked to each other a lot for me when I was writing Blanca y Roja, especially because El Principe also in that story it's the sort of it's the sort of rose red character the the character that would be closest to roja like she's the one who who goes and gets things done she's the one who says okay i'll i'll take care of this i'll fix this so i i love the way fairy tales talk to each other i love the way fairy tales talk to us and address what's within us and i also love taking them apart with the red shoes this idea of dancing overtaking you of of sweeping you away that was something that spoke to me so much as um, as a young dancer, as someone who was giving so much to this art form that I absolutely loved, but also it was it was taking so much from my body. It, it was taking so much from me. So this idea of getting of getting taken up and swept away in something that you love, but something that's also a little dangerous that spoke to me. And at the same time, the red shoes is kind of this, this weird morality tale, right? Like if, if you, if you give in to vanity, if you want something beautiful, if you want these red shoes, then something horrible will happen to you. So these sort of messages of, 
about like girlhood and and womanhood, which I have I have a complicated relationship with because I'm I'm non-binary and some in in some ways I do identify as a girl, but I also I identify more as a boy than I do as a girl. So that also played into a lot of it, like what what you're being told about about girlhood, what you're being told about becoming a woman. So I I love fairy tales and I also love taking fairy tales apart. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I I really wanted to do with with the Snow Queen in the mirror season um, for a couple of different aspects. One was the Snow Queen herself and the idea of what what is what is the story that would make you that would make you that much more at home in this isolated freezing world. And also thinking about other elements of of the Snow Queen. It was a story I loved, but it was a story that also, when I read the full version of it as as a child, made me deeply uncomfortable because the the only the only brown character in there is is portrayed in this way that that shows her as a villain. So if I wanted to find myself in this story, I had to sort of accept that that's that's where I was, and that's something Ciela also thinks about, like what what is the story telling me about me both in terms of the snow queen and in terms of this character who's called the who's called the little robber girl and what do i what do i make of this and that sort of becomes her analog for what do i make of my own story what do i make of my after of my going forward mhm no and i think in this day and age with doing retellings and us writers exploring retellings it can be kind of an empowering thing i mean to take this story and these characters, you know, that were written hundreds of years ago that have been retold so much and like you take them apart, pick them apart and kind of give a new spin. Like we can use these bones of these stories, but rewrite them in a way in which we do see ourselves more in them, which I think can be really empowering. Yeah, definitely. And that's something I, I feel so deeply um, being a, a writer of color, being a mixed race writer, a Latinx writer, a, a trans and queer and non-binary writer, it's this. It it is this empowering act of of bringing bringing my communities more into these stories, and also know, knowing that I'm like none of us are doing this alone. Like we're all we're we're all doing this work. We all have to do this work together of making these stories more aware, making them more inclusive, and making them into into stories that tell us the things that that I I almost said the things that the things that we needed to hear as teens um, and I think that's true but it's also sometimes I think things that we need to hear as adults too mm-hmm I can't help but notice that you've chosen some really brutal fairy tales yeah <laughs> you know I mean obviously a lot of fairy tales have elements of dark in them especially when you go back to some of the older versions. Um, but these and red shoes in particular, Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, he he just really didn't pull any punches. <laughs> is there oh. is there a reason? Why do you think that the the particularly dark ones are speaking to you or spoke to you as a child? Well, with the red shoes, uh, they were part of what I was talking about uh, with being a dancer. It's this. It's this a little. It's this relationship with this art form where. You love it, but it's also kind of this toxic re- relationship with this art form because of how much it takes from you. Because sometimes you have people telling you that your body needs to change, especially being like being like a, a young Latinx dancer. Like my my body did not look. 
the way a lot of a, a lot of other dancers' bodies looked, and I would get I would get feedback on that, and that was something that was really hard. Mm. So there was something captured about that in that, that story. But the way that I ended up getting to that story was I wanted to write about the 1518 Dancing Plague in Strasbourg. And I specifically wanted to write about that one because it was one of the best documented. Just this strange historical phenomenon of dozens and then hundreds of people dancing and dancing for days, dancing in a way that seemed physically impossible. And in in many tragic cases, dancing until they they fell down dead. So this phenomenon that that existed in many different places and in many different years, it happened to be one of the best documented instances was in Strasbourg in 1518. So I I wanted to write about that moment in history. And there was a there was a point where I realized that that had to go together with the red shoes, like something about that. Just they were they were talking to each other, and it wasn't until partway into the research process I was just reading everything I could find about about the fifteen eighteen dancing plague in Strasbourg. Um, everything I could find about that particular moment in the history of Strasbourg, and in this one footnote, I find out that there's there's actually a historical connection between that particular dancing plague and Hans Christian Andersen's The Red Shoes a couple of hundred years later. So we don't have, as far as I know, we don't have any specific documentation that the, that Hans Christian Andersen was referencing this, but considering the evidence that we have, it seems pretty clear that it is because Red Shoes did play a role in this dancing plague in a way that they didn't in other dancing plagues. So that was one of, that was one of the moments of absolute magic in that writing process where I where I found that after I had decided to write the book and I thought of of course these have been these have been talking to each other and I'm just grateful that the research is there and the work of these scholars that I was able to find to find these threads of history that sort of lead to this this kind of secret history of this fairy tale Oh my gosh, that's so cool. I have heard of that plague. I've read the fairy tale. I never made that connection in my mind. I can just imagine how giddy you were to stumble across that. That's amazing. Oh, it was it was one of my it, it was it was one of my research nerd moments. Um, <laughs> just because I was I was getting into this scholarly work that I was I was so grateful for and so grateful to be able to to access um, the work of these historians and the fact that I had picked this particular this particular dancing plague and that this was the one that had the connection with red shoes that had red shoes woven into it. It was, it, it was just one of those things where I've, I, yeah, it was, it was one of those just magic serendipitous things. And I, I've heard that happening with other authors. Like sometimes, sometimes I, there's just, there's magic in the research process that you don't know about until you find it. There is, that is so true. I also am a research nerd and Yes, there are times when you don't really expect things to connect in just such a perfect way that it almost feels inevitable. It's like the universe, there's a sign from the universe that you are writing the right book at the right time and things suddenly come together. And that's just such an amazing feeling. 
Exactly. I have to ask you now, what have been some of your favorite research rabbit holes? You know, the way, the one that I have in my mind, I actually can't talk about. Um, there was a book that I started working on this past summer. Um, it's my 2020 side project secret book that nobody knows about yet. <laughs> and it deals a lot with, with history, with world history and kind of like ancient ruins and missing civilizations and that sort of thing. Um, and there, yeah, there was actually a number of times when I was trying to get the plot to go in one direction, but you need something pulling it that way. And then I would just stumble across the perfect detail in my research. It's like, that's it. That, that makes all of the pieces come together just right. Um, which I know is like really vague, but hopefully there'll be a time when I get to talk about it. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait. And even what you, what you have said, I can imagine just getting lost in that research. Oh, so many research rabbit holes with this book. Um, it just, it's been fun though. It's been some of the most interesting research I've ever done for a book. So very enjoyable. Okay. I, <laughs> we need to move on because I have so many other things I want to talk to you about that we're not going to get to. <laughs> Okay. Let's talk about, let's move back to the mirror season. Um, one thing I thought was so well done in this book. So it is, you know, of course at the center of the story is a sexual attack on this boy and this girl. And so right there, we know we're dealing with, you know, very serious issues, but at the same time, you've managed to bring a lot of levity and humor into the book. Um, which I, I I don't think I was fully expecting and I loved it. Um, the, like all of the abstinence only sex education pamphlets and all of those scenes, I just thought was hysterical. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, just kind of your thought process in writing a book that is on one hand dealing with a really serious matter. Um, but how much are you thinking that about humor and about bringing in kind of some of that lightness into the story? So I think a couple of things happened that, that led to that, this level of humor in the book. And I, and thank you so much. I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, they were some of my, those are some of my favorite scenes to write. Just these, these two characters interacting and, and laughing about things. And I think they, those scenes had to be there for a couple of reasons, one was I, I have a certain sense of being cognizant of um, of taking care of the reader, and I know that there's we're we're not we're not protecting readers from from things because readers readers can make decisions for themselves. They can interpret stories stories for themselves. But I knew that I knew that some of the readers who were going to be seeking out this book were probably also going to be survivors, and. I wanted to leave space for for the fact that we have to we have to remember how to laugh. We have to we have to keep finding ways to laugh to to be to be blunt to remember that we know how. Um, so that was something I thought about that these these scenes have to have to be in there, both for those readers and in general, because when you're when you're talking about something, something that has this this kind of weight to it you're going to you're you're going to need to balance that out and you're going to need those those scenes that have have that humor that have that levity and i also wanted to portray these 
these two survivors finding that laughter with each other because that's that's often been my experience. Like um, I I laugh more with other survivors when I'm in when I'm in difficult places than than I think I than I think I do with anyone else just because we we know the places in each other that hurt. We're not necessarily talking about it, but we have that shared frame of reference. So it's a safe space to to laugh. It's it's a safe space to be able to remember that we we still find joy in the world. We can still we can still find humor in the world. And that's something that I've really found that survivors do for each other. And that's something that I've I've been so so grateful for and I wanted to to show that on the page mm-hmm. survivors giving each other that that safe that safe space to laugh and even when as you were talking about with the the scenes about the the abstinence only pamphlets even laughing about things that they didn't think they could laugh about and this sort of reflected my experience of it, when I'm talking with my friends who are who are fellow survivors like we can we can joke about things that we could not joke about with other people like talking talking about absence only education or talking about things that we just didn't think we'd be able to talk about or be able to laugh about so that's something i really wanted to wanted to show on the page that unexpected sense of oh i i still do i still do have my sense of humor and i i still have this this power that i can take back by by claiming that mhm as you were talking, I hadn't really thought of this as I was reading the book, but in in hearing you talk about it, it reminded me just of how healing laughter can be. Um, and I don't know that you were really intentionally like exploring the healing power um, in, in these specific scenes, but in thinking back to the story and all of these things that these characters are going through, it, it does kind of, it comes to the surface there that like this is these are some of the moments where they are starting to heal from this. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Laughter has amazing power to heal us. And that I don't know if that was necessarily something I was thinking of in the writing, but I think that I think that is there and I think that's something that that is one of the greatest gifts that um that we give each other whether you're talking about survivors supporting each other or or all of us just supporting each other in general. I think that's that's one of the gifts, biggest gifts we give each other. Mm-hmm. So I really want to talk about some of the magical elements in this book. Um, is it, or do you think of this as a magical realism? Is that the genre that you've attached to it? I think I do, yes. That okay. um, felt that way to me, but I know magical realism means different things to different people. So first of all, I mean, I love it. And I love the magical realism genre kind of just as a whole, uh, you know, this idea that you can look at our plain, normal, everyday world and then scatter these bits of whimsy and strangeness throughout it. And it just makes everything come to life and sparkle in ways that I my imagination has never thought of before. And I love that as a writer, I just get so giddy about that. So when you, I know you've written magical realism and you've written this, these kind of dark and whimsical books um, throughout your career. What is your process? How are you coming up with the magical details? How much of that is you thinking in advance about what you're going to include versus 
letting it kind of bubble up in the writing process? Like what's, what's your process there? It varies from book to book, but for this, it did sort of, it, it did sort of bubble up through the writing process. There was a little bit more that came out in every iteration of this, of this book. I think it, it started with Sierra and her enchanted bundle say, um, and then next was the, was the vanishing trees and the, the mirrors actually came later on. And I think that was something that came later because I, one, I had to be ready to do that. I had to be ready for I had to be ready for what that meant and what that was going to mean in the story. And also because I think there's a sense to which my process for writing magical realism kind of kind of re- reflects how magical realism works in my brain a lot of the time, which is the this idea of magic coming to the surface and showing you things. Um, making you look at things that either you didn't want to look at, or maybe your community doesn't want to look at, or maybe maybe that you need to you need to examine or consider more closely. So more and more of that magic came out through the writing process, and I think in this in this book especially that idea of of its surfacing, of magic telling you telling you things that you need to know. And magic making you making you face your your own secrets and face things that you may think about yourself or your your community that you that you may need to reconsider. And in in Ciela's case, a lot of that is is realizing is realizing how much she's not alone, um, realizing that there are there are people around her who will support her and love her and affirm that she is, she is who she is, no matter what's happened to her. She's, um, she can still be proud of being queer, of being Latina, of being pansexual. She can still be, be proud of, of her identity. I think it's so fascinating that the mirrors weren't at the forefront of the, the creation of this book. Um, because obviously by the, the finished book that we are receiving in our hands, the mirrors are such an integral part of of the story and the symbolism and how the symbolism symbolism of them just continues to build you know throughout the story and there were so many moments where i started to think okay the mirrors are they're symbolic of this thing and then 50 pages later i'm like no they're also symbolic of this thing and i mean it was like it was constantly changing as the story was changing and I, I was just blown away by that. I thought it was brilliant. Well, thank you, you so much. To you, without giving anything away, without obviously spoilers, like what do the mirrors mean to you and, and what were you trying to accomplish with them in the story? Let me think about this without <laughs> without giving without giving spoilers. I know it might be the sort of question that you can't answer without giving things away. I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna to try pull the cheesy pun about how they reflect what's happening to the character. I know. I think I've probably already used the word reflect without thinking about it. So no no pun intended. Um. So I think the 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 way I can the way I can put it without giving spoilers is probably is probably going to be really broad but I'm going to I'm going to try anyway. I think I think the the mirrors end up 
I'm going to use the word reflect again. The mirrors, the mirrors end up reflecting what these characters journey is with trauma and what their relation is, relationship is with trauma, how they, how they make sense of what's happened, how they hold on to themselves and how they, how they figure out what life looks after and how they go forward. Mm-hmm. And same question, but regarding the, and I, I'm, I was saying pan dolce, but you pronounce it differently. Pan dolce? Yes, pan dolce. So for you, and I, I mean, I love this and food and magic just seem to go hand in hand for whatever reason. Uh, and so we have this character who can just look at somebody and know exactly what kind of sweet or pastry this person needs right now. Um, and not like on a, a physical, like what's going to satiate their hunger, but what do they need emotionally and spiritually? And I just love that idea. It's so, so romantic and so touching. And I mean, I wish that I could go to this bakery. Oh, I'm so glad. You, I'm so glad you liked that. Yeah. I love, I loved the process of thinking about Bambulse as its own language and thinking about what each of these characters, what they would, what they would need in, in sort of pastry or, or bread form. I felt like it added this really great depth to the community um, that, that this bakery is located in, that these characters are living in. You know, because every person who walks through those doors that she she looks at and she has to figure out what does this person need, it's like she gets these little, almost like fortune teller-esque glimpses into this person's life and into what they're going through. And it was just like this constant reminder that, you know, even though the story is focused on these characters, they're living in a, a wider world in which everybody is going through something. And I just love that, that feeling and that vibe that that created. Oh, thank you so much. I, I love the way you just put that. Cause yeah, that's, I, I don't think I ever really thought of it specifically that way when I was writing it, but yeah, that, that really is what it's about that every, everybody's got their own story and, um, Sienna's not not really going to find it out with everybody, but she is going to get little little glimpses of it and be able to think this is this is what I can give you in my brief interaction with you. Mm-hmm. So I do. I also want to talk about the idea of voice um, because it's the you know it's one of those writer terms that comes up a lot and like editors and agents are always saying I I I love a strong voice and. You're like, well, what does that mean? And you, oh, well, I know it when I see it, which is like the most frustrating comment as writers. What does that mean? Um, but with your books, I feel like you're one of those writers that I know it when I see it. Like, I just, I love the way that you use language uh, and and the little details that you choose to incorporate. And you and I were talking before we started the recording about this idea of like, stories being both dark and whimsical, um, which you just capture so perfectly. And, and I find really inspiring, uh, for my own writing as well. So I just would love to know when it comes to voice and when it comes to like wordplay and word choice, do you feel like that's something that you've worked intentionally to cultivate? Um, 
and, or how would you recommend if somebody is maybe struggling to find their writing voice or develop their voice? What, what would you suggest? So I'll add the, the usual caveat before I say this is that every, every writer's process is different. And this is, this is my specific, specific process. For me, if something about voice isn't working, it's usually because something about the story isn't working. It means I don't, I don't know the character enough. Um, sometimes I don't know the setting enough. Um, I don't know how the how the character interacts with the with the world around them. So a lot of it is about knowing enough about this character and their world to know how they see the world, how they see both the world that they move through from day to day, and also how they how they see the world outside that world that that they're moving within. And a lot of that for me is about what characters notice, what they what they pick up on, what stands out to them. And knowing what characters notice, if I can figure that out about a character, then I know I can I can figure out a lot about how they see the world. And that starts to that starts to help their voice come into focus for me because when I when I know what they're paying attention to, what they're ignoring, what they want to ignore but can't, then that goes a long way in helping me know that character enough to hear their voice. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're struggling to get to know the character on that level? So what'll happen with me sometimes is that I'll be able to I'll be able to hear the character's voice. I'll know certain things about how they see the world, but I won't necessarily know why. And that's something I'm thinking about right now as I'm as I'm working on um, on a revision for a book that's co- going to come out next year. And it was sort of that process of thinking like, okay, what don't what don't I know about this character? And once I once I started getting to know that it it all started to make more sense. So sometimes figuring out how that how that character came to see the world the way that they do that's that'll that'll get me closer to to knowing that character in the way I have to to know how they'll how they'll move through the story, how they'll make the the choices they're going to make. Mm-hmm. So I have a running theory Um, having now talked to, I don't know what I'm up to like 60 authors or something, um, in these podcast interviews, um, I've started to notice a trend and I'm going to, I'm going to test my trend against you. (laughs) Um, Oh no, I I feel a weird amount of pressure. Okay. Let's let's see what happens. I mean, I'd love to find (laughs) the person that breaks the trend because, you know, it would just be fat. I'm just fascinated by process and how our brains work. Um, before I go into what my theory actually is, um, two questions. Are you a plotter or a pantser? And do you write a fast first draft or a slow first draft? Okay. Well, in answer to the first question, I appear to be both because I look like an outliner because I will meticulously outline my first draft, but then I'll realize about halfway through that I need to throw out the entire map because it's not working anymore because the story's gone in different directions. Um, and I also think I probably look like a pantser because I have to, I usually have to rewrite my books at least once. Um, major, major rewrite, sometimes a, sometimes a couple of times. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of refining my process with each, with each book, like figuring, figuring out how to get closer to, to like getting to that, getting to that character and getting to 
what's going on in their world a little bit, a little bit faster than I used to be able to. But I'm someone who I look like a I look like a plotter because I I like doing all that ahead of time. I I have to know one way a story can end. But I think I probably I, I probably also look a lot like a pantser because I'm not overly attached to that particular ending. I'm not overly attached to that particular version of the story. I just have to be able to know that there could be an ending for this story, even if it's going to turn out completely differently. I, just the- for the record, I relate to everything you just said so hard. <laughs> that oh, I'm glad. I really speaks to a lot of things I'm going through right now. <laughs> I am so glad it's not just me. I will always, I will always start my outlining with the best of intentions and think this is, this is it this is the outline to end all outlines. Nothing will have to change. And of course, halfway through, I thought, okay, you're just doing the thing again where you you have to you have to figure out one way it can end. It's not going to end this way. That's okay. You're going to, you're going to figure out how it should end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I also end up rewriting everything like that first draft. It just never sticks. <laughs> okay. And then the other question was, and then I'll, I guess I'll ask, do you write your first draft quickly? And what about that second draft when you have to rewrite the whole thing? Is that a fast process? Or, I mean, generally speaking, I know we all kind of write at different rates and speeds, but do you feel like you're a fast drafter or not so much? I don't know what exactly what exactly fast drafter <laughs> Like, do you do the NaNoWriMo not oh. out in a month thing? I I am I am a proud member of the has attempted NaNoWriMo 10 times and never gotten to 50,000 words club. There are, there are a few of us, a few even who have exceeded the number that I've tried, but I've I've never been able to do that in a month. Usually the drafting takes me a little longer and then the revision processes will get faster and faster even even when I have to totally rewrite a book a couple of times. Um those rewrite processes will get faster mm-hmm. just because I, I think some of it is process of elimination. I know what the story isn't. So, and in that, in that first draft, there are things that I, there are things that I love about writing that first draft, but also the story could be anything. There has been very little process of elimination at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I feel what you're saying. Um, okay. Well, I feel like your, your answers have left me fairly neutral. I don't feel like you pushed my theory one direction or the other. Um, so I, in talking to so many writers, I've noticed this pattern where writers that, that I feel fall into this, this category of really lush, almost poetic writing, um, of which I would put you in that category. Um, so many of them tell me that they, tend to be more pantsers than plotters. Um, so don't really usually subscribe to an outline so much and that they tend to write really like slow, meticulous first drafts. Um, but I, I feel like you sound like you're kind of in the middle on both of those things. So I have neither proved nor disproved. Yeah, I guess I'll just yeah. have to keep asking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Again, we're all different. I know that there's no... There's no like magical way to be like, this person writes a book this way. Okay, we are now going to wrap this up with our happy writer bonus round. First question, what book makes you happy? 
what book makes me happy? This could be a lot of different answers on a lot of different days, but right now I'm going to say The Little Prince. How do you celebrate an accomplishment? Usually it involves it involves moving around in some way because I, I kind of can't sit still. So either I'll walk around learning a new song on my recorder or I'll I'll play with my I'll play with my ribbon wand. Um, I did rhythmic gymnastics for a while back there, um, or I'll I'll do Irish dancing or something. I just <laughs> I really I really like to move. I can't sit still. That is one of the best answers to that question I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I need to get myself a ribbon wand. <laughs> what I highly I highly recommend them. Mine is mine is rainbow. They come in many different <laughs> colors. I recommend it. It feels very it. celebratory. <laughs> my girls, they love to play with ribbons. Like we'll just bring out the big, you know, box of wrapping ribbons and they have made their own little ribbon wands. And it starts with like one ribbon. And then the next time I look over and they've each got 30 ribbons attached to this stick, it was like, go for it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's fabulous. Just making the rainbow. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, let's see where, what advice would you give to help someone be a happier writer? Follow the shiny objects. And by that, I mean the, the stories that are shiny to you, the stories that are sparkly to you. And that's, those are going to be different for you than they are, than they are for anyone else. And that, that's part of what makes them the stories that, the stories that you have to write and the stories that are, are going to light you up as you, as you do the work of writing them and revising them and making them the stories that you want them to be. What are you working on next? So right now I'm working on um, my two books that are going to come out in 2022. The first one comes out in March 2022, and it's called Lake Lore. That's the one that um, I talked about revising earlier earlier in the podcast. So what I can tell you as this continues to undergo the revision process is that this is, this is a story about um, two non-binary teens who are both neurodivergent. And I, I think it's, I think it's kind of going to be a, a romance about non-binary identity and neurodivergence. Love it. I'm always in for more romance. Lastly, where can people find you? So you can find me on Twitter at La Ana Marie, L-A-A-N-N-A-M-A-R-I-E, or my website, which is com. I will say it threw me for a loop that you're not on Instagram. I know. I get that a lot. I think the the reason I'm not is, um, speaking of rabbit holes, a couple of reasons. One is because I will fall into the the rabbit hole of pretty pictures and never come out. I think I know <laughs> that. Um, the other one is that I like I barely keep up with with Twitter. I love coming on there once in a while, but I'll just, I'll just forget to log on to Twitter and Twitter. And I thought, okay, you, you don't, you don't get your Instagram until you're on Twitter more, <laughs> more consistently. I can see that. I, after I, um, joined Instagram, which I was a pretty late joiner, um, considering, uh, but I like immediately abandoned Facebook and Twitter. I was like, I do not have time for all of this. And this is the prettiest one. So <laughs> we're, we're here now. <laughs> I, I totally get that. But that's also why I have to be very, very cautious because there's, <laughs> there's so much pretty there. I yeah. might, I, you might never find me again. I know. I know. And we do need to like, you know, write books and stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> write, write books that we make the inspiration boards for. Right. <laughs> awesome. Anna Marie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was lovely. And I was, I was so thrilled to get to chat with you. And I was too. Like we were saying before we started the recording that it has been years, at least, I don't know, definitely pre-COVID time. It feels like it's been years um, since we got to see each other. So I'm glad that we could do this. I am too. Thank you so much. Readers, be sure to check out The Mirror Season, which comes out this week. Of course, we always encourage you to support your local indie bookstore if you can. But if you don't have a local indie, you can check out our affiliate store at bookshop.org slash shop slash Marissa Meyer. If you're enjoying these conversations, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Marissa Meyer author and at happy writer podcast. Until next time, stay healthy and cozy in your bunkers and whatever life throws at you today, I do hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier. (laughs) 